Welcome everyone to the weekly spotlight from Diversity Naps. My name is Kabir Seth. And if you are joining us for the first time or you've been listening to us for um, weeks, um, we're doing a little something different this week. I wanted to, to mix it up. Um, I have my friend Amy Kraft on. She is a fellow founding member of Diversity Naps um, and also one of the members, uh, founders of the Monkey Bar Collective, which is a company that specializes in content creation and production services for children's media. Amy, thanks for coming on. I'm so happy to be here. Yeah, I'm excited that, that you are here. Um, I feel like we've had a lot of offline conversations and it'll be good to uh, to to do this podcast together. So um, I'm going to be talking to Amy about her awesome app, um, The Monkey Spot Scavenger Hunt. Um, but first, to just get a couple things out of out of the way, Diversity in Apps is a grassroots coalition. We're made up of researchers, producers, parents, and educators, and our mission is to raise awareness and engage in research about the need for inclusive, equitable, and diverse children's media. And this podcast is one of the ways we do that. We'll have a newsletter coming out on Sunday. It comes out every Sunday. Um, and it, it has a lot of articles in it that relate to diversity from, from the week. And um, we encourage you to share it with, with like-minded folks and spread the word about us and the need for diversity in children's media. So with that, um, we're going to talk about a few articles. Um, the first, um, actually before we do that, Amy, I, I want to talk to you. I, we're going to switch things around yet. We're not going to do the articles first. So let's first talk about the monkey spot scavenger hunt. So I won't do it justice. So why don't you give <laughs> us a little background, Amy? All right. Well, Monkey Spot is actually, it's a series of scavenger hunts. So when you first get the app, it's available on iOS and Android. When you first get the app, it comes with seven base hunts. And these are hunts that you can do around the house or if you go to an art museum or we have ones that you can do anywhere. Um, And we really want to think about like how kids can use them to observe their world in different ways and really be active participants in where they are. So like, for instance, if you're out to eat, there's that thing like it's just like it makes me a little bonkers. I am not a screen time limiter except right. at dinner time. <laughs> like and at restaurants, I'm like, oh, I really, you know, that's you know my line for yeah. it. Yeah. Um, but then there was something about like okay, that that wait between like you're ordering and you're waiting for the food to come right. and the kids are getting squirrely. We think about like those like high utility times and it's yeah. like. What if the app could get you to have conversations with people at your table, with right. your server, with like observations about the restaurant, the menu, the food you're going to eat, things that you can do with what's on your table, and just start to use the app to get kids to play with the people that they're with and observe their surroundings. Yeah, and I think the thing like you, you mentioned is you have built-in hunts and you have them for all over wherever you are whether you're at a restaurant whether you're at an art museum whether you're just standing in line which i think is is really awesome and like you said it it creates this interactivity that you don't normally see with when screen time i think when people think of screen time at the dinner table it's a kid sitting there and sort of playing a game or or texting and and not really interacting and and i think that's that's what comes out what age are you sort of like what age did you sort of design it for and what have you seen in terms of your audience 
What's been exciting is we've seen a really wide range of people doing it. I would mm-hmm. say the youngest kids can do it alone is like our young readers. So like right. seven, eight, nine seems mm-hmm. to be a real sweet spot. Younger kids can do it with their parents, which is great because as we've been talking to like children's museums, it's really awesome to get parents involved in kids play. Right. Um, and then, you know, I have a tween who, is, <laughs> you know, I'm bored. This is awful. Um, who will use it to just re-engage with places that sure. she is or even places that she's grown out of like we did one for you something to do in a playground because mm-hmm. we would go to playgrounds with my six-year-old and she's like this is boring it's like right. do this <laughs> go play <laughs> right right no that that makes a lot of sense i want to i want to touch on the the museum stuff uh in a second but um so when you sort of how did how did the idea for the app come come about like you're a veteran of the industry was it sort of like something that um, that you had done previously in, in maybe more of a physical form? Um, a little. You know, it's something that we do with our kids. So I have to really call out my co-founder here, Sharon right. Billman, um, because Sharon and I, you know, we've known each other for years. And Sharon, I'd say even more so than I, just is always thinking about games to play with her kids, you right. know, just games in general and how to activate the spaces that you're in. We've both always really loved scavenger hunts, so it just seemed like a great first entry for yeah. our first original app. Right, right. And the app itself is sort of set up, like you said, there's seven built-in hunts, which is amazing for um, a free app. And then you guys have additional apps, correct? Mm-hmm. We oh, have sorry, additional, additional, additional hunts. hunts that you can do. Right. Um, and a lot of what we try to do is make sure that kids anywhere and of all different abilities can use them. Right. You know, there are some things from like pre-K concepts, like shapes and colors and sure. alphabet, to like more complex storytelling things. Or like you said, the things... Um, around where you are if you're going to an art museum if you're going to a baseball game if you're going to an aquarium these are the things that you can do to really just like learn more about where you are right that's that's awesome i I think like you said that the opportunities are sort of endless and and where you can do hunts and i think kids you know you can't take away um the technology um and but this is a way to sort of get them observing and and looking around their their space so when you guys were sort of you know designing the app i think one of the things that comes naturally is when you're thinking about um diversity is like it's it's very easy to think about diversity when you sort of have a a game with characters but in in your case there is no real characters right so Mm -hmm. how how did you guys think about diversity and, and inclusiveness um within the app well, it's so interesting because as we were really in the weeds on it is the same time we became members of diversity and apps. And right. that was the question we started asking ourselves. It's like super easy to think about diversity when you are talking about characters. Sure. What does it mean? And like one of the first things is that we don't have bright answers. Yeah. So it's completely about a child's own interpretation of what a clue means and what their response is. Mm-hmm. And we really want to like leave that open-ended so that it really does work for all kids in different ways. And yeah. that if they're satisfied with the answer, we're good with that. You know. So that's one of the things. And then the other thing is thinking about where this can be used. Sure. You know, Because even people have called us out like, well, not every kid can go to an art museum. It's like, right. true. <laughs> that's true, and that's yeah. unfortunate. Um, but what does it mean, like, to have, like, nature in your backyard? Like, just mm-hmm. go find 
things. And if you don't have nature, if you live in the city, it's it's very handy because I live in the city and Sharon sure. lives in a town, you know, like the kind of town where there's like great parks, everybody knows each other. And then I'm in New York City. So even the differences of like how we approach a hunt and how our kids would yeah. hunt yeah. starts to share um you know different ways of thinking about it and then what was great is we had um our like one of our QA testers was great and he was doing it with his girls and like one high utility time for him was in the laundromat yeah. and which of our hunts could be done in the laundromat and i think it was just amazing for the different times kids would want to be engaged with their spaces and what those spaces look like for different right, kids. Right, right. And I think that sort of goes to one of the things that we've sort of talked about when building out the Dig Toolkit is sort of the diversity of your audience and sort of who you're thinking about. And I think it's you can see it just in how you guys were designing. You know, Sharon lives in, in a town, you live in a city, so naturally sort of how the kids interact with it are going to be different, and that's super important. And sort of is a, is a different type of diversity that maybe people don't always um, think about, like right. where where they are ge- geographically. So um, that's, one, that's... One thing we have to keep reminding ourselves as we do nature hunt is yeah. like, all right, if you live in Phoenix, what does right. that look like? You know, because right. it's like, you know, we're never in the desert. So yeah. um, kids that have very different experiences of nature. Right, right. No, that, that makes a, a lot of sense. So one of the things that you guys have sort of been working on as you launch the app is to is to build out partnerships with community organizations, with museums, and um, you're you're planning on doing something now with with a museum, correct? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm super excited about it. It's starting in a couple of weeks, and we have three special hunts to be done at the New York Hall of Science. Awesome. Um, they have something called Rocket Park Recess, which is this amazing cool set of activities that you can do on summer Fridays. So starting on July 22nd and the two following Fridays, uh-huh. thinking about the entire um, space of NISI in different ways along different themes. And then they have other partners coming in to do activities. And so our scavenger hunts will not only lead kids throughout the whole museum thinking through that week's theme, but also lead them to one of these new activities, which right. is super fun. Right, right. No, that that's... Uh- um, that's amazing. So, when you guys were sort of um, when you when you talked to uh, to the Hall of Science, what was like? I, I guess one of the things you had to think about, right, was your device at that time was only iOS, correct? Yeah, and we've been hearing from a lot of museums in particular. Like, if yeah. you are going to do it, it's got to be on Android too. Right. You right. know, you really want to be able to hit their full audience. Yeah. And so, really, you can kind of expect like just about everyone who comes through that door is going to have a mobile device and it's going to be one of those too. So it really makes sure that it's inclusive in terms of who can participate in it. Absolutely. No, that, that makes a lot of sense. I think, again, it goes to sort of device choice and, and the challenges that sort of come with that. I think, um, I, I think any developer you talk to is sort of the, um, it's a lot easier to design for iOS, but there's Mm -hmm. a clear need to, um, to have to design for, for Android as well. I think the challenges of Android simply is because of the different screen sizes and sort of the, the, the different devices. Obviously, it's, it's a difference between um, an open and closed system. So there's right. certainly, certainly challenges there. And you guys launched on Android three weeks ago? Something like that. That sounds right. <laughs> <laughs> okay. 
All right. And um, yeah, and Android is a, it's a challenge for small developers, but you have to sort of like be committed to right. putting this to as many people as possible. For sure. I, I think, um, you know, obviously the, the partnership you had was um, sort of, um, you know, made sense for you guys to to expand there and then naturally it was a it, it was because you wanted to reach as many people as you could what um what has sort of been the feedback are are you getting feedback from from kids saying i want this hunt or i'm looking for this hunt it is awesome when we get that kind of feedback. We tend to hear more from parents and for kids. And again, it's those high utility things. The sure. moment we launched, we heard airport, airport, airport. <laughs> that makes sense. So, I mean, it was yeah. great. It's like, great, we will do an airport. And we always welcome, we're launching new hunts all the time. So yeah. we're always looking to hear new things. And similarly with partners, we're constantly looking for new places to partnership. We right. did one that I'm super excited about um, called High the Heights, oh. which for people who don't know northern Manhattan, and right. I'm talking about part of Manhattan that doesn't make it on all Manhattan, <laughs> <laughs> which is where I live, it's very strange. It's very hilly. Yeah. There's lots of mini forest and crazy parks up here. Right. And like, you know, I see woodchucks and skunks on a regular basis <laughs> in our backyard yeah. of our building. And so it's just, it's a great way for people to explore these parks of Northern Manhattan and this mm -hmm. peculiar place of where city meets nature. Right. And we did it for an event that uh, an organization called Hike the Heights was doing to get the community of Northern Manhattan, particularly the young community kids out and moving and getting to know their parks and getting to know their neighbors and their yeah. neighborhood and it was just so exciting to be able to like do something like that for my neighborhood right right no that's that's awesome i think the app just makes so much sense because you know kids love this natural sense of of going out and, and searching for something and doing sort of a, a hunt and sort of completing it there's a there's a feeling of of satisfaction when it's it's complete and then there's sort of an endless um supply of places that that you can do it um so it's it's really that's it's it's a great idea and are, i guess are you guys planning on sort of continuing you're continuing to expand that app are you looking at um at additional apps that that you can share or, or is it still top secret it's still top secret <laughs> i'd say although i think one thing that we learned from this is very much about who we are as a company and it's, sure. it's about getting kids to engage with their world around them and with the people around them and i think that you can expect more of that from our future monkey bar collective apps yeah that makes a lot of sense sort of that um that's sort of your guys's vision and and it makes sense that that and i think more and more parents are looking for sort of how technology is going to allow them to how kids are going to interact with with the world around the real world around mm -hmm. them and and observe it like um like you mentioned and do you want to just sort of briefly mention also the other work that um you're sort of continuing to do as as part of your uh content creation and production services sure yeah i mean sharon and i have been working in the industry um i'm not sure exactly how many years it's been, <laughs> since cd-roms <laughs> good enough good enough <laughs> Um, yeah, so we've been doing this. We we both worked at Scholastic for a number of years, so that's sort of like in our bones, right. making work for kids. And now we continue to do work for a bunch of different companies um, focused on the kids' space. So, for instance, uh, Houghton Mifflin Harcourt has this 
awesome, awesome app called Curious World. Right. Um, and it's designed for kids as ages about three to seven. And they've tasked us with making a whole bunch of original games for them. And nice. it's just been a treat to do. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, we're always looking to do great work in the kids' space. Awesome. Yeah, I will. Uh, I'll make sure that I link in the show notes to to your guys's website and also to uh, to the app for sure. So. Awesome. All right. So um, I wanted to talk to you also about a a couple articles that we've been sort of sharing back and forth. The first is um, is really around the Harry Potter universe. So they have. The new Harry Potter movie is uh, well. I, I guess first the play is already out in um, in London. Um, the the what's it? Harry Potter and the Cursed Child. Child. How much right. do you want to fly to London right now? I know, <laughs> I know. I uh, I ordered the uh, the script, like the um, whatever they call it, the the um, the play script. So um, I guess it's July thirty first. It, it comes out here, but yes, I would I would definitely love to see it. I actually don't want to be spoiled. I'm one of those people who normally is fine with spoilers, but um, I don't want to uh, to be spoiled. And then so they have the play coming out, and then um, the first movie since uh, the Deathly Hallows Part Two mm-hmm. is coming out in December. Uh, fantastic, fantastic beasts and where to find them, which I guess is going to be the first of a trilogy is, is what we understand. But so what, um, JK Rowling has been doing on her website, pottermore.com is sort of laying the, uh, the groundwork, the history of magic in North America. And, um, she's been writing, I I think the website has been updating since I want to say the beginning of the year, maybe even earlier than that. And, um, has been receiving a lot of criticism. I think um, there's two pieces that um, that we're going to be talking about. The first is called Dear J.K. Rowling, We're, we're Still Here by uh, Lorali Sepsi. I hope I'm pronouncing that right. And then the second piece was in the Huffington Post, which um, I seem to have deleted the title of, but it talks about uh, J.K. Rowling and the... Um, and how it can sort of teach us about cultural appropriation. So where the criticism is coming from is um, is really what what Rowling has done is when she's talking about the history of North America has really borrowed a lot of um, works from Native Americans, sort of stories, myths um, from from Native Americans, and sort of almost um, stereotype them into what uh, how, how someone from the outside would sort of would view them. So Amy, I'm curious, did you, did you read the criticism first or did you read the Pottermore stuff first? I'm embarrassed to say as a Harry Potter fan, I have not read the Harry Potter or the Pottermore stuff. Okay. I've only read the criticism of it. You only read the, okay, <laughs> fair enough, fair enough. So it's um, like, I have, yeah, I've only seen one side of it. Sure, sure. So, um, I, I went to the Pottermore, like, I was um, refreshed. I, I go to the Pottermore site more than I care to admit. And, um, you know, I, I read a lot of the stuff that's up there and sort of getting to know this character, that character. And um, when she posted this history of, of magic in North America, her part one, actually um, wasn't, I didn't find it that compelling or, or that interesting. And then sort of the criticism started to to come out about it. And... Um, I guess what I'm curious about is, did you think, like, 
did you think that this was necessary? Like, uh, I, I mean, we can sort of get into the, the cultural appropriation piece, but are you surprised that she sort of started from the beginning or sort of where magic came from in, in North America? I'm, I I have to, like, we're both huge Harry Potter fans. I'm not mm-hmm. sure as a fan of Harry Potter I really cared about this, right? Yeah, it's interesting because, like, reading the books, like, I feel like when you get deep into, unless I'm missing something, when you get deep into, like, sort of the history of magic, you know, on the other side of the pond, mm-hmm. it doesn't feel like it's touching on anything with real-world corollaries. Right. Am I forgetting anything? Am no, I-, I think I was curious about it, too, as I was reading through this article. I was trying to remember, and this is someone who's, like, I've read Harry Potter probably, like, six times it's probably the only book that i've reread more than once and or more than twice and i don't remember like it it was sort of like a funny thing where i didn't like i was always i guess a little curious i was like so like what did like what was going on during world war ii with these these magicians like what were they doing what were wizards and witches doing right right and so like (laughs) i guess i was curious about it but it was almost like i didn't want i I don't think there's like a good answer to that. Like, I, Although that's some act- good fan fiction you need. To <laughs> I guess. Maybe I should have looked <laughs> for it there. But it was just like, I, and then it was the same thing with sort of like with Voldemort. It was like, okay, this was all happening in the UK, but like aren't there other wizards and like wouldn't they care what was going on? And it was like, well, it, it was just sort of like almost, and, and the piece, the Huffington Post piece actually links to another piece, I think by the same author, where she talks about how Hogwarts and sort of the whole Harry Potter universe was confined to this small space, to this small enough universe space that, like, it was okay, you know? Like, it was, it fit into this sort of boarding school seven book um, piece where the first six books took place all in Hogwarts and sort of that was like the safe confines. And then the seventh book was sort of this, um, you know, going on a mission and a, a hunt, a his, like, you were you were going on an adventure outside of it but the point that i was getting at was like it was confined to the small space that even if you had these questions it like wasn't ruining the story and it almost seems like here she wanted to take this like huge bite or she wanted to like talk about this this piece that was in that i'm not sure could only screw things up you know like why why want to build all of this out just for like a, a story that you're telling that takes place in the 1920s, you know? Mm-hmm. So I think that's where um, I sort of struggled with like, what was the premise, but what the, the two pieces talk about one is by someone who, who um, has native American roots and sort of goes very clearly into why um, the, the particular school of, of wizardy in North America actually uses creatures that are the symbols and names of the houses that, you know, are part of Native American lore. And and there was a lot of um, just questioning of why this, you know, a lot of people refer to it as sort of cultural theft. Mm -hmm. Um, And so when you were reading the criticism, what was your first response? I guess, did you, you read both pieces, I take it? I did. And part of like how I got into really finding all these articles about it is a friend of mine posted about it on Facebook Mm -hmm. with the frustration of all the criticism being leveled at JK Rowling. Like, you know, she wanted to try and shouldn't we give her credit for that and give people room to make mistakes. But this felt 
bigger to me than that. Um, right. So it's interesting, like having that conversation a little bit. Um, but I do feel like, all right, take it, take it from that direction for a second. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's to have like, and the woman who wrote about it, um, Lorelei Sepsi, I think, was yeah. saying, um, "Look, I'm a Harry Potter new- nerd. To have." Native Americans represent. Wow, this is exciting. You yeah, know, like Jessica yeah. Williams jokes about like the three black people in Harry Potter. Um, <laughs> you know, to like see yourself represent in this world that you love so much can be very exciting. And for kids reading this who right. are of Native American descent, like that could be very impactful and exciting. So there's something I think there's a gem of something good in there. Yeah, but it's all in the execution of it, right? Like, um, of why are you doing it? How deep do you want to go into that lore? And if you're just going to like, oh, and this is a story on Pottermore and that's all it's going to be, it, it might have been best to stay away from it because you can't do it justice. Yeah, exactly. I, and I as think- you're saying, it becomes, that's where it becomes the cultural theft, I think. It's the, it's the cherry picking these like wonderful magic elements that completely suit her universe, but not that group of marginalized people. Right, right. I, I think that, you know that that was sort of the criticism that I felt made that um, that I felt hit hit the most. It was it was just it felt like um, she was picking and choosing these things, these pieces, and then sort of the other thing that was um, that kept being reiterated was that she was sort of lumping these distinct cultures all mm-hmm. together. Like mm-hmm. these tribes had distinct beliefs and distinct sort of uh, cultures. I mean, there's no other way to put it. And, um, and she sort of like just mashed that all together and, um, and then sort of used that to, to fit the story. And right. it was strange to, um, you know, one of the, the contrasts that they showed was that like the magical creatures that she used in, um, in the stories in the original Harry Potters were sort of, most of them were made up. Obviously there were like unicorns and mm-hmm. a dragon, but you know, most of these things were sort of stuff that she just sort of made up and, you know, they probably had some hints of it, but like in, in this history of North America, she like flatly just steals, you know, a, a skin, uh, skinwalker and a, a few other like magical items or, or pieces that appear in, in Native American myth and then just like wholeheartedly sort of twists them around. And it was strange to like, um, to be to, able to, to yeah draw that straight line between yeah. those things and her Harry Potter. You know? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And, um, you know what the Huffington post piece goes through is that this is like an all too common story. And one of the things that I, uh, I picked out here is where she writes, you know, where they talk about it. it's, it's a piece of fiction by a non-native writer that negligently mishandles cultural traditions and lores. And it, and what they were saying was like, now because she has so much influence, she's so read that it's almost reinforces these like sort of stereotypes and beliefs about native Americans that like could have been done with such a, a deaf touch and mm-hmm. um, it's sort of, it, it's really disappointing. I, I, I think, you know, the, the author of the first piece who has um, native American roots is sort of, you know, she makes it very clear. She loved, loved, loved Harry Potter. And like, I think like we, we all do. And it's just disappointing to see, um, to see her 
sort of make this mistake. And um, did you ha- have you seen anything in terms of her response, or has she been asked asked about it? I have not seen anything about yeah. her response to it. Yeah. So it's it's just um, it's really sad. I, I think um, you know I have to say. Um, I read the piece, I read the story about um, how the um, how the school came to be, the North American school, and it's really good. <laughs> I know, like, uh, I had read the criticism before and obviously picked up on, on what, um, where it was coming from. The story itself is, is really compelling, and the thing is, it would have been just as compelling without sort of, you know, bastardizing what whatever she did like there was just no need for it and the thing that I'm also worried about is like these are pretty detailed stories and pretty um you know there's a lot going on in them there's a ton of different characters and when the movie comes out like I I'm I'm concerned that we're gonna tread onto this ground again yeah and if we do it's just it's gonna make it even worse and so a part of me almost wants it to be like you said, it's this piece that just lives on Pottermore and not be something that we have to keep going back to in, in the trilogy, because I think it's just going to, it's just going to make it worse, but it's hard for me to imagine that they would create such a, a deep world without, you know, wanting to go back to it. Or um, is there a way to go back to it in the right way? Could you get a Native American director for that movie? You know, a writer, you know, the screenwriter. And it's the kind of thing of like, it's something we talk about with diversity and apps a lot. It's like, what would be the right path to it? And the thing that's so disappointing is such a good word for it. It's like J.K. Rowling is a champion. Like she's this great liberal champion of so many different kinds of people. We love Mm -hmm. her. She's amazing. And if somebody like that, somebody that well-intentioned with that level of resources at her mm-hmm. disposal doesn't use them to do this the right way, it's so hard to ask, like, you know, Jill Ryder, yeah. who is writing about something, to go do your research, go talk to the people you need to talk to. Yeah, um, yeah. That's, and and that's put well your said. time and resources in that direction. Like, if, if she can't do it, it's disappointing. Right. It's I yeah, I think that's that's well said. I think the it is sort of uh just frustrating. I think like you said, I think she it's clear that she has such a huge respect for human rights and and um and building up um people or or forcing us to remember the people that um are often forgotten. And I think her stories, I mean like the Harry Potter universe is sort of, you know, told through that um with that thread throughout. And so Mm -hmm. it's, it's, uh, it's really frustrating. Um, but this actually go, this is a good segue for, um, for the other piece that, um, we're going to have in the newsletter this week about, um, the Iron Man, um, has a new character taking over. It's a, um, a black female who's going to be taking over the mantle of Iron Man. Um, are they calling it Iron Woman? I don't, I don't know. But, they haven't uh, said that okay. I've seen. Like, like, what happens now? Do you still call her Iron Man? And also right. the fact that she's a girl. She's 15. Right, right. Yeah, exactly. She's a um, a genius, a uh, graduate of MIT um, at, at 15. So I, I have to confess, growing up, I 
read pretty much only DC comics. I, um, (laughs) I did not read any Marvel. Um, I've been heavily criticized by friends as, um, being a simpleton and, and sticking to the simpleness of, of DC. Um, I, I really struggled to sort of get into, um, these characters. Iron Man never seemed that compelling to me. Um, obviously there was a lot more going on with X-Men and, and Fantastic Four, but, um, but where the segue sort of goes into is um, Marvel has been one of, you know, has, has sort of been at the leading edge of um, taking their characters and sort of responding to the fact that America and the, the world is a much more diverse place. And so, um, you know, Miss Marvel became a, uh, a Pakistani American who, who is a Muslim um, and Captain America also became... Um, an African American man, and so there, there's been all these sort of changes that that happen in in many of their characters. But where the criticism came about in in Iron Man, which um, normally when these things happen, the criticism comes from um, from sort of the t- the typical place you expect it to come from. But in this case, the criticism was coming from the fact that a a white male was going to be writing the story of of Iron Man, who is a is a black female now. And then sort of they um, started to look through the history of Marvel and they realized that Marvel actually has no black female writers currently on staff and a, you know, a single black, you know, not a single black woman has written, ever written a Marvel comic during um, the the country, the company's like 80 year history. So, um, so when you read this piece, Amy, what, um, I guess... Did you first of all? Did you know that Marvel had done all this? Uh, had done many of the changes with their characters. I did know, and I also I looked to Marvel to be more on the leading edge of doing right by women in their mm-hmm. comics. DC, man, they keep making missteps. <laughs> like they they they're doing some good stuff. Um, right, with, like their new cartoon and um, the superhero girl. I'm forgetting now the name of it. It's like yeah, young. I know what you're talking about DC superhero girls. Yeah, so, yeah. so th- that's cool. Um, but yeah, <laughs> <laughs> so I, yeah, it's tough because at the at the end of the day, and you know, Marvel, it's Marvel, right? Who hired Tanahasi Coates to write? Right, right. Black Panther, yeah. Black that's Panther, right. and so that's exciting. Like it's just sort of like they are saying, yeah, we should we get it. Yeah. We get it, and we need to work on this, and it's good business. So right. they're definitely leading DC on that edge. But it, I think, gosh, this ties into so many things. The same thing with, like, you know, J.K. Rowling writing right. about the American community, having white men write these characters. But, you know, so there's the problem. It's like, yes, please, please hire black women immediately to do right. this. You know, there's, yeah. there's a piece of it. But there is, like... It, the day-to-day production reality, and this is something we've talked about with diversity in apps too. It's like, what can you do today? What can right. you do? You know, obviously, like hiring and who, you, which voices you're bringing on, is one of the biggest things that you can do to increase the diversity of your voices and what your comics look like or what any media looks like. But you know, you're making a new Iron Man, like representation is important this is the Oscar so white this is all of that stuff because like if you've got mostly white people mostly men doing this stuff and that's a harder thing to change putting representation in it 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 feels 
yeah, like step I, forward, you know? Right, right. Exactly. I, I think, um, you know, one of the criteria that, that we created in the dig toolkit was hiring just mm-hmm. like the idea that having different voices at the table and different life experiences is going to create a better product and sort of allow you to, um, to see your blind spots within the business and then, mm-hmm. um, and be able to respond to that. And I think, um, and then there's, there's sort of, um, different steps of, of, um, of doing that. I think what Marvel has done, like you're saying, is sort of acknowledging the, the, the need to create diverse characters is, is a step in the right direction. But, you know, you also need to sort of have the people who are creating it, the content creators be, um, be diverse as well. I, Mm -hmm. I guess, um, I think the, the piece talks about how we're not saying that like men can't write women or women can't write men. We're just saying that like, it's important that, you know, it, are you ever going to get the full experience? Is a white male ever going to be able to write the experience of, um, a black female? Probably Mm -hmm. unlikely. Um, and, and I think that's where the, some of the, the criticism was coming from is like, you've taken steps in the right direction, but it's important to, to now continue to, um, to hire, I mean, to have one female black writer on, on Marvel is, is not too much to ask. And, um, they talk about, um, Ruth Bader Ginsburg. One of her quotes was, you know, um, people ask me, when's it going to be enough, um, civil rights justices or sorry, the Supreme court justices that are women. And she's like, Oh, when there's nine, you know, mm-hmm. when there's nine women on, on the bench, they, they said, well, doesn't that seem too many? And she's like, why? It was fine when there was nine men. So um, I thought that was like an interesting uh, quote. And, and it sort of goes back to um, a lot of the things that we look at with children's media. It's sort of like there's a default to to something, right? Mm-hmm. And that default sort of um, is is uh, – is white male and and you know breaking that is is kind of um is is very challenging so um like what would you say to uh, like do you think that uh, is your mind still open to like i definitely would check out this comic even though it's written by by a, a white male about a black female for sure yeah. I'm super yeah. excited to check it out. Well, in the same yeah. way, like, you know, I think that there have been a lot of men in the entertainment space that have given us great women. Yeah. Um, have there been a lot of white people who have given us great characters of color? It's harder to think of those examples. Sure. Yeah. Um, so I, it, it's interesting. I would obviously like to hear from more people and the people who are listening. Um, but yeah, like, you know, Joss Whedon, Paul Feig, like these are like men who create like some of my favorite female female characters of all time. Yeah. So, it, like, on that piece of it, yeah, you could do it. Yeah, for sure. I think um, I think you're gonna see that with the Ghostbusters reboot for yeah. sure. I think. Oh, I can't wait. Um, <laughs> yes. Yeah. Just well, another I, I week. Well, I think too right? about the thing that like Gina Davis says sometimes. Like, it's just like you know, take your script and now just like flip gender flip race Mm -hmm. you know like just take some of those characters and just even by doing that you sort of subvert the expectations and you can kind of play against type a little bit but again that's never going to be as good as having diverse voices telling the stories from the outset 
I, yeah, yeah, I agree. I, that's I not to say that, that can't be good, but I just think it's you know, it right. lacks the the same level of authenticity. Yeah, for sure. I think that um, that's a piece. I think if you sort of compare these two things, I think with Rowling, it it almost seems like like her, you know, her approach should have been to sort of do you know basic research and sort of um, with the vast resources that she had to sort of to tell a more compelling story that um, that did these you know the history of these people justice. Or, it, like, what basically what I'm saying is, like, not even touch this stuff and just, you know, come up with your own um, piece like she did with, with Hogwarts. And then with the the Iron Man stuff, it's almost like, you yes, you're, Marvel is definitely on the leading edge, like you're saying, of, of um, making it more progressive and making it more, um, I guess, accessible to, to their diverse audience. And... Um, you know, now they sort of the the tougher piece is sort of making the 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 company itself be be more diverse. Really, nineteen percent of the company's creators are female. Um, I guess how you define company's creators is probably pretty creative as well. So mm-hmm. yeah, so I this was a lot of fun, Amy. I I really enjoyed this. It's if, fun for if, me too. I know if I could like rope you. <laughs> I could keep anything. talking for like three more hours. I know. I know. Um, <laughs> In terms of the Iron Man piece, did you have more to 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 touch on on that? No, I'm you know anxiously excited about it. I agree. I <laughs> I'm. Um, she looks badass. Like. Yeah, it it just is is really awesome. I actually, as I was reading through, sort of, um, I guess there's a Korean American that's taken over um, the Incredible Hulk. I'm al- almost curious to. Um, to head down to the comic store and sort of check these check these out, um, including and Ms. I'm Marvel. such a movie and TV person. I just want these all to be Netflix shows now. Yeah, <laughs> are yeah. you hearing Netflix? <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I think they they've probably looked at the data and they know it's a uh, it's that was one of the things that it said in the piece is that like it's easier to do this in comics because it's cheaper, whereas the other ones are sort of making James Bond sort of a person of color is an exceedingly costly gamble. I'm not sure I totally agree with that. hasn't the internet said we will all go yeah. see Idris Elba doing it? I haven't seen a James Bond film since, like, right. oh, my gosh. I just, Timothy I, Dalton, maybe? Right. It's a little... <laughs> and oh. so I would go see an Idris Elba. Right, right. James so, Bond. Yeah. So there you go. Well, but I think, yeah, it's like activating different parts of your audience. It, yeah. You know, it's be like... Like James Bond fans, are they really able to see James Bond films till the end of time, or you want to bring in some new people? Right, right. I think there's um, the data sort of bears out that audiences are eager, hungry, and willing to pay for diverse um, content, content mm-hmm. that has diverse characters, whether that's diversity by race, whether it's diversity by income i think there's a huge there's a story to be told about diversity of class and yeah um, maybe that'll be told soon sooner than i think um <laughs> but anyway this was a lot of fun amy thank you so much for taking some time and and talking through i um i look forward to having you on more i i think this would be fun to to continue to I, love it. I love it all right thanks a lot okay thanks Bye-bye. Yeah, bye bye